To those of you who are visiting this morning, again, welcome. Uh, we as a church have been studying this, um, this book of Mark, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We've been making our way uh, through this historical account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. It's the shortest of the four historical accounts that we have of Jesus in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament. And so it's clearly not an exhaustive account, meaning it doesn't tell everything that there is to know about Jesus's life. We hear nothing about his birth, for instance, in the book of Mark. It just jumps right in to his adult life. But what we do know about Mark is this. Mark is intentional in what he has recorded here. We believe with the help of the Holy Spirit that Mark has recorded exactly the events in Jesus' life that he needs to record, that he wants to record, in order to convey his purpose in the book, and that is to show to his hearers, to his readers, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's going all the way back to Mark chapter 1. Verse 1. And as we walk through this book for now, I don't know how many weeks, we have seen exactly that. Through Jesus' compassion, through Jesus' miracles, through his fulfillment of prophecy, Jewish prophecy that was generations upon generations old, we have begun here in 2016 to see more clearly who Jesus is. And yet, incredibly enough, one of the things that we've seen as we've worked our way through this book is that the disciples, these men who are traveling with Jesus, these men who are seeing all of this firsthand, they're missing so much of the point of it all. And it's easy for us to sit here and say, oh, surely we would not miss it. But I'm telling you, we'd be no different They're seeing what he's doing. They're hearing amazing things, but they aren't getting the point of it all. They aren't getting the reason why these things are happening. But as we come to this chapter, the end of chapter eight, we come really to a pivotal point in the book, a pivotal point in our study of the book of Mark, where understanding is about to shift significantly. And Jesus is going to illustrate that before it even happens. So listen as I read. If you're able, I would ask you to stand as I read the scripture this morning. Mark chapter 8, verses 22. I'm going to read through not only the end of chapter 8, but also verse 1 of chapter 9. You know, the verses in our Bibles, the verse markers and the chapter markers, those are not part of the original text. Those were put in many, many, many years later. And this is an example of why they're not from God, because this is a screw-up by whoever marked this up. Uh, Clearly, verse 1 of chapter 9 belongs with chapter 8, but it bleeds into chapter 9 in your Bibles, which is fine. But uh, listen as I read. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 22, going down through chapter 9, verse 1. And they came to Bethsaida, And some people brought to him a blind man, and they begged him, that is Jesus, to touch him. 
And so Jesus took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on him again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I want to walk through this section for the next few minutes. It's a lengthy section, I know, uh, but I think we can sum it up in two truths and a question. So for those of you taking notes, especially our kids, uh, there's going to be three points to this sermon, and I want to begin with the question. And the question is found in the middle of the passage. So we're going to skip that first part for just a moment. We're going to begin with the question. The question is this. This is point number one. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Of course, this is not me, Nate Hitchcock, asking you, who do you say that I am? This is Jesus asking. And this is the most important question that can be asked by Jesus. He asks it of his disciples here. He asks it of you this morning. Notice it's a different question than the one he initially asks. He initially asks, who do people say that I am? And there's no, there's no shortage of opinions on who Jesus is. It seems like every December, every April in our modern culture, Jesus shows up on the cover of some publication at the supermarket. Who is Jesus? They're going to explain it to us, finally, who Jesus is. 
That's, of course, in the academic ivory tower realm. But even at street level, there's opinions about who Jesus is. There's a local church, in fact, that has a website where you can go and you can share your opinion of who Jesus is. And they let you. They, Jesus is blank. You fill in the blank. So I decided to go to the website, get a couple opinions. Jesus is a myth. Jesus is an escape for people who can't handle reality. Jesus is an inspiration towards truth, towards goodness. Jesus is irrelevant. Everybody's got an opinion about Jesus. In his own day, they had their own opinion. Some people, the disciples said, they thought he was the Old Testament prophet. Now, Elijah was gone, he was dead, but some thought maybe he came back to life or maybe just this Jesus is inhabiting the spirit of the Old Testament Elijah. Because Jesus, like Elijah, serves the God of Israel. Jesus, like Elijah, does amazing miracles. Some in the day of Jesus, in the day of the disciples, said Jesus was John the Baptist. He too was dead, but maybe he's come back to life. Jesus, like John the Baptist used to do, can really draw a crowd. Jesus preaches a similar message, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. See, we don't have the same context as the disciples did here, but we have no shortage of opinions. Many in our day think that Jesus is a good moral teacher. Jesus is a man of compassion. Jesus is a revolutionary figure. And if we take the ancient opinions of Jesus that the disciples said, if we take our modern opinions of Jesus that we hear on the street or on this website or even in your own mind, if we bring those two eras together, some of this is of course true. Jesus did do miracles. Jesus did serve the God of Israel. Jesus was a good preacher. Jesus was a man of compassion. Jesus was a revolutionary figure. But if we stop there, we're ultimately wrong because we haven't said the whole truth. It's like asking someone in Seattle, who is Russell Wilson, and they answer, well, he's a compassionate community, conscience, conscience resident of Seattle who works for the Seahawks organization. Well, those are true. Yes, he's a resident of Seattle. Yes, he's community conscious, but there's so much more. See, Jesus knew that the answers to the first question that the disciples gave would be incomplete, which is why he follows up with the more pointed question, what do you believe? Who do you believe that I am? After all that you've seen, after all that I have taught you, who do you say that I am? And finally, Peter, collectively for the group, answers, you are the Christ. Now Matthew adds in Matthew 16, 17 that this answer of Peter has happened with God's help. That God helped Peter see this, but we say, finally, ding, 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 you've got it. Jesus is the Christ. 
He's not just some miracle worker. He's not just some sleight of hand musician. You are the one that God has promised to redeem his people, the anointed one. We get it. Well, they almost get it. And we'll get there in a moment. But before we move on, I don't want to leave this question alone in our own hearts, in the hearts of those you, of you sitting here this morning, because this is the crux of it all. This is the crux for everyone sitting here this morning. The, answer, the question is not, what have you done? In other words, how good of a person are you? The question is, who do you say Jesus is? course, this is a can of worms. I mean, we could go so many different directions. We could talk about the resurrection. We could talk about the dozen, uh, the dozen or so other dozens of messianic pretenders who claim similar things to what Jesus claimed, and yet none of them had the impact upon civilization that Jesus and his followers did as this thing called the church birthed. But instead of going down those tangents, we don't have time to do that this morning, I'm gonna leave you with a quote. A quote, it's a kind of a lengthy quote, but it's from a popular theologian of our age. He's from an organization known as U2, and his name is Bono. Bono was asked in an interview, the interviewer says, Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but son of God, don't you think that's a bit far-fetched? And here was Bono, the lead singer of U2. Here was his answer. No, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy. He had a lot of things, to, a lot of great things to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please, just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. And at this point, everybody starts staring at their shoes and says, oh my God, he's going to keep saying this. And so what you're left with is either Christ, who was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. great answer. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those claims altered the course of human history, and they are intended to alter us. I am what you need, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is where we all must end up, and this is where we all must 
begin. Who do you say that I am? But our second truth that we find in this passage tells us about the journey, about getting to that answer. And the second truth is this, not just Jesus' question about who do you say that I am, but this, seeing Jesus clearly can take time. Seeing Jesus clearly can take time. Now let me explain what I mean. We're gonna jump back up to the beginning of our passage. Let me ask a question first. Do you guys know what a phoropter is? It's a great word, if nothing else, phoropter, spelled with a P-H. It's also called a refractor. It's that thing at the eye doctor that you look through. If you're a music fan, think Justin Timberlake's last album cover, right? That thing that he looks through, that you look through with the eye doctor as you're looking at the chart. And as you begin to look through that thing, it's all blurry, right? And then the doctor, he starts flipping the lenses down and things start becoming clearer until finally, that's it. I can see it. It's crystal clear. You see, that is the journey that the disciples have been on. Well, we could say for all of their time with Jesus, but specifically this last chapter. It really began back in chapter seven, most pointedly, most acutely. Those of you who have been here, remember back in chapter seven, just about a chapter ago, Jesus healed a deaf man. Jesus couldn't, uh, or Jesus was presented with this man. This man couldn't hear, he couldn't speak. And so what does Jesus do? Do you remember Jesus led him away from the crowds with his disciples? Jesus, oddly enough, we're not gonna go into this, but Jesus spit. Jesus touched him. The man was healed. And Jesus told him, don't go tell anyone about what I've just done. And here today, starting in verse 22, what happens? Here we have a man who can't see. Jesus, again, leads him away from the crowds. He oddly, again, spits. He touches the man. The man is healed. The man sees. And Jesus tells him, don't tell anyone. Don't go back to the village. See, I want you to see how parallel these stories are. Because what these stories are for Mark is their bookends. Their bookends. And in between these two bookends, these parallel stories, what do we have? We have the disciples trying to figure out who the heck Jesus is. Remember last week we talked bread, bread, bread. It's all about bread. We're talking about bread. We're talking about leaven. We're talking about bread. Jesus is trying to communicate, I'm the bread that you need. And he keeps asking the disciples, do you understand? Do you see? And the reality is they don't understand. They don't see until that confession of Peter that we just looked at a minute ago. See, as we come to this miracle of Jesus and this man who is blind, it's the only time that Jesus seemingly fails at a miracle, right? It doesn't work. 
It's a two-stage miracle. And we think, wow, did you just mess up, Jesus? Just didn't really put the juice through that arm like you normally do? No. Jesus is trying to make a point. He is illustrating a point, and the point is this. The disciples see vaguely, just like this man sees vaguely. In other words, seeing Jesus clearly can sometimes take time. In verse 18, he asked the disciples, do you not see? In verse 23, he asked this man, do you see anything? And the man answers, well, I, I see people, but they look like trees. If we were to ask the disciples to kind of bring that into their mind, into their psyche, they might say, well, we see Jesus like he's, he's like a cedar. I mean, the dude is powerful, but we don't really understand what he's doing or what it all means. But Jesus is clicking the, the lenses over for the disciples. And they're slowly seeing and everything is about to change. So what does this mean for us? That seeing Jesus clearly can take time. Well, I suspect for some of you here, Jesus is quite blurry, right? The image that you see of him is quite blurry. You're just getting acquainted with Jesus. He's a great historical figure. He's a man of compassion. And yet there's still so much that you don't know. There's certainly so much that you don't believe yet. See, this truth is for you. Seeing Jesus clearly can take time. And so the application is keep pressing in. Keep asking him to find you, to touch you, to help you see who he really is. And then for others of you, I know many of you in this room, for others of you, Jesus is, is fairly clear. You've known about him for years. He is your savior friend. You've trusted and walked with him for just as many. But the reality for you, the reality for me even, is the same. Jesus is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of, of wisdom and understanding. You can't exhaust Jesus. And so the application for us, for all of us in this room, whether Jesus is clear or whether Jesus is blurry, is keep pressing in. Keep asking him to find you, to touch you, to help you see him more clearly, more deeply, more intimately. And what does that mean real practically? It means keep coming here. It means keep rubbing shoulders with these kinds of people who are gonna show you Jesus. It means go deep, read about him, learn about him, think about his implications for your life because seeing Jesus clearly can take time. And that brings us to the final point that I wanna look at this morning. It's out of those last few verses that Jesus speaks of and it's this, confession leads to a cross. 
Confession leads to a cross. The disciples, as I said, they're so close. Peter's answer, you are the Messiah. That's so close. But Jesus tells them in verse 30 not to tell anyone what they've just confessed. Why does Jesus do that? If, if they've got it, if the lights are suddenly all on, Jesus is crystal clear. It's because they don't exactly have it. They understand he's the Messiah, but now the problem is, what is the Messiah? And Jesus has to redefine their expectations of who the Messiah is. You see, they recognize him as the long-awaited Savior of Israel, but what does that mean for them? Think about the um, entrance of a fighter at a big fight, a boxing fight. You know, the, the, the entrance of a, of a fighter coming out of the tunnel, whatever you want to imagine in your mind. The disciples finally understand that Jesus is, is the fighter, right? In a sense, ah, Jesus, you're the one. Okay, you're the one that's, you're the one that's gonna fight for us. You're the one that's coming into the ring. All right, we get this. They're looking at the tunnel. They're waiting for him to come out. They're waiting for him to come out with his gloves on, bobbing and weaving, ready to get in the ring in their minds with the, with the Romans of their day. And out of the tunnel comes Jesus, not bobbing and weaving, but he doesn't even have gloves on. And he tells them, I'm here. I'm here to fight, but I'm not going to throw a punch. Instead, I'm going to get obliterated. I'm just going to get knocked out in the ring. And the disciples are saying, what? Jesus, we just got that you're the fighter. You're the Messiah. And now you're telling us you're going to lose? Suffering, rejection, death. And then that last word, which is the most significant word, resurrection, that almost like got lost in the first three. See, no one thought of the Messiah suffering. Even though the prophet Isaiah foretold it in passages familiar to many of us, it wasn't on their radar. And Jesus says in order to rescue them, he's got to die for them. And understandably, Peter is upset. This isn't Peter just raising his hand in class saying, um, Jesus, I think you might have gotten that wrong. I don't think that's what the Messiah is supposed to do. No, this is Jesus getting up out of his seat, grabbing the chalk, if you're my era, the whiteboard marker, if you're another era, out of Jesus' hand and saying, Jesus, sit down. Let me tell you how this is going to go down because you've got it wrong. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, no, you sit down, Peter. You don't know how it's going to go down. And he uses some of the strongest language we can think about Jesus using. He says, get behind me, Satan. And we say, what is up, Jesus? And I think what we see here is, boy, we see another glimpse of Jesus' humanity. Because you see, what Peter is doing by saying, no, the Messiah will not suffer. You're here You're here to kick some butt is what you're here to do, Jesus. And suddenly, suddenly there's confusion. 
And in Jesus' human nature, there is that same temptation that he had way back in the wilderness where Satan said, just bow down to me, Jesus. All these kingdoms can be yours. You don't have to do what the Father wanted you to do. That whole cross thing, bearing the sins of God's people, dying, being turned, you know, having your having Father's back turned, just forget all that. Just follow me. We'll have this thing. And essentially that's what that's what Peter is tempting Jesus to do. Which is why Jesus says so strongly, No, we're not even going there, Peter. I've got to go to the cross. I've got to go to the cross. And brothers and sisters, it's this resolve of Jesus that gives us hope. If Jesus did not have this resolve in his human nature, if he did not follow God's will and God's plan for our salvation, we would have no hope. But he who knew no sin willingly became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. And the paradox of it all is that the seeming defeat of Jesus dead on a cross, of course, in the end was the victory because he didn't stay dead. And there's this paradox to our journey as well, to what Jesus calls his followers here too. Confession leads to a cross. Not confession of Jesus leads to rainbows and roses, but a cross. Jesus is not a means to your end. Not, Jesus is not somebody you just put in your toolbox for when you need him, when life gets hard. You and I are the means to his end. And in the process of that, for our good. Because his end and our good are one and the same. And that's the beauty and the goodness of the gospel. So the confession of Jesus for all of us in this room leads to a seismic shift from self to God. And this doesn't mean that we lose ourselves. This means that we find ourselves. Let me read you another quote from an author that we all know well, C.S. Lewis. He wrote this, he says, the more we get what we call ourselves out of the way and let him, that is Jesus, take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surrounding and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and cannot stop. And so C.S. Lewis came to this conclusion in his own life, quoting him again, look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Confession leads to a cross. Yet in that cross there is joy. In that cross there is peace. 
in that cross, we find ourselves. Jesus leaves his followers at the end of this passage with verse one of chapter nine. Those standing here will not taste death until the kingdom of God comes in power. We don't have time to really unpack that and talk about what he's talking about. I don't know exactly what he's talking about. He could be talking about this transfiguration, this event that we're about to go to in the next chapter of Mark. Could be talking about the resurrection, could be talking about the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. All of those are events where Jesus showed himself glorious. Whatever Jesus means here for those standing hearing his words, what he means for us and them is encouragement. Encouragement that his glory will be seen again. John 14 starts off, Jesus says to his followers, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And so there is hope. There is a future coming And the question for us this morning is, when he returns, who will you have said that he is? Keep straining to see him. Keep straining to find yourself in him that your soul might not be lost. That's the message for us this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for these Stories of Jesus which paint this portrait so beautifully and so vividly of of who he was and, and what he's about. And it doesn't answer every question that we might have about Jesus, but at least it gets us on the right path. And I pray for those here this morning, those who have heard these words. Holy Spirit, would you set them on the right path? Would you confirm the truth of these words in their hearts? Would you continue to give them strength and grace as they strain to see clearly who you are? That a true confession might be theirs. That a true cross might be theirs. But that in that death to self, there is actually life, life in God, life in Christ. Oh God, make it so, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.